Fort Ord, California, 1988. There is a young man heading into the PX. He grew up without a computer, a cell phone, or social media. His soft cover has his name on the back and two reflecting tabs sewn above it. His soft cover is rolled at the top, creating a perfect circle, and the bill is folded down, infantry style. He is wearing his solid green jungle fatigues, and they are starched and pressed. His BDU top is as flat as a pizza box. His pants are taped with masking tape around his ankles, creating two perfect seams inside his legs, and they are tucked into his jungle boots, which he has painted with leather luster and baked in the oven at the mess hall. The tips shine like black onyx. He does not walk. He struts. He is one of the grunts, one of the guys from Infantry Hill, and he ignores those who wear the medical patch or the admin patch or dress greens. To him, they are not worthy of his attention because he is the real soldier, the steel in the bayonet, the trigger puller, one of the real soldiers here at Fort Ord. Then... A good-looking female soldier walks by in hospital whites. He executes a perfect about-face and will not be seen for the rest of the afternoon. Ah, yes, one of my favorite songs. Well... Welcome to the final episode of Light Fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War. My name is Jason Dias. In the late 1980s, a group of young men who did grow up without computers, cell phones, and social media will help end the Cold War. This is not based on a true story. This is a true story. Here it is, the final episode, and we are talking about the National Training Center. Imagine a place that when people discovered it, just said, hey, we'll just call this place Death Valley. Now imagine being there with all of your gear, some of the longest marches we ever made, in some of the worst conditions, the heat of the desert. I have to say, I was surprised when we went down to the National Training Center. I had envisioned us as, you know, jungle uh, fighters. That's where I thought we did our best work. And of course, by the time we went to the National Training Center in October of 1988, we'd already been to 29 Palms. We'd already been in the desert. But the National Training Center was a completely different experience. And joining us to talk about it today on the show is someone who many of y'all will remember. I remember Remember him as Lieutenant Eigel. He is a West Point graduate, the class of 1986, and he's actually going to go on after Fort Ord to spend a few more years in the Army. Um, he's going to get his Special Forces tab, and he's going to spend a lot of time living in Europe and in Russia, which is interesting since we kind of viewed Russia as the bad guys. But after the Cold War, as Lieutenant Eigel told me, he took a pick bu- peek behind the Iron Curtain and liked what he saw so much that he married a young lady from. Leningrad, and they have three beautiful children and still live in his hometown area of the Bay Area out in California, Ed. And so I'm looking forward to talking to him. And I, the reason I saved the National Training Center for last is because it really is, to me, the, the perfect way to wrap up this 
podcast. As you heard me mention in a previous episode, you know, my dad attended the War College. My dad was in the Air Force and then worked for the Air Force for 32 years out at Randolph Air Force Base. And I would read some of the literature. And in those days, it was all about who has more tanks, the Russians or the Americans, the Warsaw Pact or NATO. Well, the National Training Center was one place where we didn't realize we were rehearsing for Desert Storm, but we were really practicing for that big, you know, land, air, and sea, World War III, you know, to settle things between the Russians and the Americans to definitively decide who was going to win the Cold War, and the National Training Center was the perfect place to do that. It's, I describe it as the Army's version of Top Gun without the Tom Cruise sex appeal. So I started by asking Lieutenant Eigel, I said, when you were at West Point, was there a time when the focus and the training went from being from that protracted World War III scenario in Western Europe to focusing on some of these small, mid-intensity you know, conflicts in places like Central America and Panama? Well, I mean, it was like that for a lot of the time. That the, whole, you know, the whole strategy was all about uh, fighting, the, fighting the Soviets in, in, uh, you know, in Germany. And, but then later, uh, some of these, I think, you know, as, as one of your earlier speakers was saying, in Grenada, Caused us to take a, caused the army to take a different look and realize, hey, we didn't, we didn't have the, uh, the mobile, the mobility on the battlefield and the jungles and then these other places where tanks would never, never go. So it did, it did feel the focus change there. You know, at some point I can't say when it was, but. Uh, but it certainly did change. And of course, we were that mobile force. And of course, we all have our favorite Captain Townsend stories. And Lieutenant Eigel is no exception. Especially with Captain Townsend. I remember, oh, I yeah. remember <laughs> a radio call when, when, you know, you guys, the second platoon was supposed to be somewhere. somewhere and, and Captain Townsend shows up and he's, he's not there. We hear on the radio, you know, we were like, you know, uh, uh, Alpha Zero. Uh, uh, what was it? Alpha three two. This is Alpha zero six. Yeah. Where are you? Where are you? This is Alpha. This is Alpha three two. I'm right there at the. I'm right there at the uh, the link up point. Bill, dang it! I'm here. And where on God's green earth do you think you are? Of course, the Bill he's referring to is Bill Lombatis, the second platoon Alpha Company lieutenant, our platoon leader. I I love Lieutenant Lombatis. We all did. But sometimes the tactical stuff was a little beyond him, and that's what I talked to Lieutenant Eigel about. You know, there were different skill levels among the officers that we weren't always aware of. I would learn from Lieutenant Eigel that he actually lived with Lieutenant Lombatis for a period of time. You know, we all thought the officers made so much money, but in reality, they didn't in the late 19. 80s, and they would all get together, three or four of them, and live in an apartment off post somewhere. And so I thought that was interesting. I would love to hear some of y'all's favorite memories from the National Training Center. And I asked Lieutenant Eigel, what are some of your favorite memories? Favorite memories from the National Favorite in air quotes, perhaps. Well, I mean, I could just remember a few of the snippets of... You know, walk and we call it movement to daylight, and these were some long ass movements. Um, and just Beep. probably the first, probably the first time in our Alpha Company career, we didn't make the objective on the first night. We walked all night. I never knew I remember, that. Oh no, I remember. Uh, you know, we were out. Uh, I think in this particular one, we were out as kind of the, the scout, uh, scout platoon, or for for the company at least out. And we were supposed to. 
find find like the final way way into the objective and and then when we did that come and meet you the rest of the company at the what they called the i think it was called the, the assembly uh, right assembly, assembly area, area something yeah. like that. so where, where you drop the rocks right and so i when when cam townsend told me over the radio his grid you know where he dropped the rocks it was like a mile from or two miles from where we were. I'm like, holy cow, we gotta go walk another four miles to bring these guys to the beginning of this baby. So we were like eight hours late. I remember that. It kinda it kept going like that. And I just remember the final the final night and and uh, we were supposed to go attack there's some kind of two, two like BMPs right. about, you know, ten you know, five kilometers from us and Camp Townsend had had the lieutenants and uh I don't know, maybe the, the, the first start, we're kind of in a little circle. It's like two in the morning, and he's talking, and we all fell asleep. All of us. And then he's like, wake up, you guys. All right, let's go. I know I know exactly what night you're talking about. I remember very well because in in my platoon or between the platoons, there were two guys talking about a college football game that was going on. And in California, the college football games could end at one or two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, because of the time difference. And we started rucking up in mid-afternoon. And we did not stop walking on that particular movement until the next morning, which was Sunday morning. And I and I am certain some people said twenty seven clicks. I know for a fact that was the longest march I ever went on during my time with with four two one. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was it was phenomenal, and, and, and the distances. And the other thing I remember was one night. Uh, uh, I don't know which night it was, but we were, you know it was a movement to do some kind of attack in the morning. And uh, we unfortunately walked by a tank and got blown up, <laughs> left on the side of a hill. Somehow there was a total disconnect at the battalion level. And somebody that became probably my best friend and God, uh, Godfather of my daughter, left us on the battlefield for about 24 hours. Wow. So we were out there, and finally I had to. I didn't want to do it because, uh, but it, there was like 10 of us. And I'm like, well, I can't. We we can't. You know, we can't walk anywhere, and it's it's kind of a danger. I think they were going to have a live fire there. Oh, wow. Zone. So, so I had to go on the OC channel on the radio and say, yeah, this is a, this is a Lieutenant Igle, uh, <laughs> first platoon out here. We're, we're still out here in the battlefield. And like, Who is this? What are you doing on the OC channel? Man, there, was, there was hell to pay. Oh, but... Well, as I mentioned, Lieutenant Eigel married a young lady from Leningrad in the old Soviet Union. And I wanted to ask him, you know, what was her perspective growing up in the late 20th century? How did she see the Americans who were, you know, the antagonist on the world stage as we did this amazing global chess match called the Cold War? In Russia, it wasn't personalized as much like that. Right. You know, they, it, it they weren't, you know really thinking that the Americans were going to come and, and, and attack them and things like hmm. that. So it was a little, so I think she was surprised at how, how personal we kind of took the whole thing. Lieutenant Eigel, Matt Eigel now, is actually from the Bay Area, and he told me he still drives through Old Fort Ord sometimes, even though Fort's not there anymore. I, I go back uh, occasionally, drive through Post, and it's changed. I relive the, the good days on a bad, you know, if I'm having a bad day, it helps. Uh, I, I've driven through Fort Hunter Lake, and I've ridden my bike with Lieutenant Mike Ross through there, and and uh, fantastic memories. I, I have so many good stories uh, to tell in life because of uh, 
because of you guys. Well, if you ever if you ever take a bike trip out in the backyard, I've I've checked on Google Earth. The last time I checked, it's still there. The Impossible City, to the best of yeah, my knowledge. Yeah, it's, it's great mountain biking now. That's what Florida's become as a mountain biking mecca, and uh, that urban, that mouth site's still out there. I don't know if he's using it, but it's still there. They even they even survived the fire, the Captain Townsend uh, smoke grenade fire, burned <laughs> down half the post with. <laughs> I, yeah, he doesn't put that one in his uh, military resume uh, when I check. <laughs> So it's good to know. It's good to know that even Alpha Six uh, uh, was a uh, was prone to the occasional the occasional setback. Listen, well, thank. You. I'm mad when that. I just add one thing to that. When that smoke grenade it caused a little brush fire and it started flaming, and we're just at the very beginning of our assault, and we're like, "Hey, sir, what should we do?" He goes, oh, "Just keep going. It's more realistic." I actually know exactly what field problem he's talking about. That was one day we actually flew from Hunter Liggett on Black Hawk helicopters to assault the impossible city at the end of one of our Fort Hunter Liggett field problems and we had on the Miles Gear multi-integrated laser emission system is what I think that stood for and it was just like a very intense game of laser tag using real weapons and I remember it very well because we lost a lot of guys and it was all simulated. It was very realistic. We had a a casualty cards. Everyone had a casualty card in their pocket. I can remember Lask getting hit and I had to go out and check his casualty card and said he's been shot he can't walk you need to you know get him off the battlefield and i just said hey put your arms around my neck and i crawled off the street with him you know into cover while the guys were covering for me and when we found out our whole company assaulted this one block at the impossible city and i think we found out we were only aggressing against 12 guys and i realized that's about the last place you ever want to fight is in an urban environment which is of course where i'm going to end up for my four minutes in combat during desert storm that i'll talk Talk about a little bit later in this episode. Well, thank you so much, Matt Eigel. Still lives out in California. Um, he and I think Lieutenant Ross are, are owners of a communications company. He told me he's actually was actually doing some work for a client that's doing some training, a National Guard unit that'll be doing some training at Camp Roberts and also at Fort Hunter Liggett. And of course, he knew where everything was at Fort Hunter Liggett. And so, I just want to say again, thank you so much, Matt Eigel, and, and very best to you and your wonderful family. Thank you for helping us out with this episode of the podcast. Well, some of my memories of the National Training Center, there's a picture there that I'm using for the episode description. I can't tell, but I think we're wearing mop gear, and I can't even imagine how we survived wearing mop gear in Death Valley. But then again, when I think back on it, there's a lot of things I can't believe we were able to do. I just, my memories are, the reason I, I saved it for last, for me, it was the hardest field problem, National Training Center. I just remember walking, and the heat, the heat was really, really bad, and the distances, the distances that we covered on that field problem. You can see forever in the desert, and yet when you're looking out across and you see like a mountain in the distance, oh, we're only going there? It may be 20 clicks away. And again, you're walking with all of your gear and in the heat. I remember we got issued those uh, two-quart desert-colored canteens because you needed the extra water. Well, 
when we would get settled in, like I said, I was a little surprised. Like, I didn't really think there's a whole lot light infantry could do against armor. Uh, a couple years later, when, when I was in college, and one of the professors predicted that the United States was going to lose the war with Iraq, I was like, you're crazy. And the reason I said that is because I had stood next to an M1 Abrams tank and knew this was the most dominant piece of equipment in the history of, mil- of the military. And I just knew that the Americans had turned a corner and that Desert Storm wasn't going to take any time. And as it turned out, it took 100 hours to beat the Iraqis with the armor and the tactics that they were practicing out of the National Training Center. And of course, for the light infantry, we could be used for reconnaissance. We couldn't destroy a lot of tanks, but we could certainly destroy the trucks coming up to supply fuel to the tanks, or if there was a scout element out there, one or two BMPs or something. We had, I think they were called Dragon anti-tank missiles. There's a story coming up about that as well. Another one of my memories, we would, we would get into these areas where we would stay for a while, and you had to build a fighting position, and it had to have overhead cover, which meant filling tons and tons of these sandbags, which was backbreaking labor in the heat. Well, some of the guys in 2nd Platoon, to save a little time, instead created a perimeter around the top of their fighting position. They gave us these plywood things to help build it. They just built a single wall around the, the the fighting, the top, the roof, and filled the rest with sand. Well, that was a bad idea. It collapsed in on them. I don't remember all the guys that were involved. I remember Ron Middleton was was injured. I thought they were injured pretty badly. And and I got on the radio and I called in the, the dust off. We called in the the medevac and and got those guys out of there. And they turned out to be okay. Uh, but I remember Wiz, uh, the RTO, my buddy Wiz Wiznet, coming up to me afterwards and just saying, "Yo, Doc, man, you were so you were so." And it was just one of those moments. National Training Center for me was the penultimate field problem. It was the hardest, but it was also the one where I thought I did my best soldiering, taking care of the guys on that day among them. Uh, the other thing that I remembered was because of this, it goes out on the radio. We, we fly in the, the dust off and we get those guys out of there. The, the chaplain shows up. The battalion chaplain shows up and he's like, hey, doc, great job. Wait, great job there. He says, where are you from? I said, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. He walks back to his Jeep, opens up one of those igloo coolers and brings me an ice cold can of Coke. Now, I thanked him. I was very appreciative. And I guess he handed it to me. The one that he gave me is because I was from Texas. It was a Dallas Cowboys commemorative edition of the familiar red and white Coca-Cola can. Well, I am an avowed, lifelong Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and I would not drink that Coke. I gave it to Wiz. He didn't have a particular football preference at the time. (laughs) The Jacksonville Jaguars were not in the league at the time in 1988. But I just remember that, you know, that whole ice cold Coke that I would have really enjoyed, by the way. I I simply, as a Steelers fan, would not drink out of a Dallas Cowboys Coke can. I've, I've told that story many, many times as well. Another one of my favorite memories, we, we had that long march that Lieutenant Eigel talked about. I know you all remember it. I mean, it went on all night, movement to daylight. Our job was to get into what was called a reverse slope so we could watch the bad guys go around us, and, and then we could call in. We had Sergeant Hudson with us, the forward observer from Division Artillery. And like I said, this, this is a big time what civilians would refer to as war games, field problems, maneuver. And it is the real deal at the National Training Center. So we we move into that reverse uh, slope 
position. We are all just exhausted. And uh, But this is not meant to embarrass Lieutenant Lombatis, but it's a true story and one that I remember very, very well. Well, we're sitting there, and there were these guys called controllers that accompanied us. They worked at Fort Irwin, and they had like the little white ribbons around their hats, and they would walk around and say, hey, this went well, or this didn't go so well. This They were kind of there grading everybody. And so in the morning, now we're there to observe. We're really not supposed to be seen. The controller walks over and yells, gas. Well, Lieutenant Lombatis was asleep, and he, I guess in his sleepy delirium, he puts on his gas mask. Now, when you first put on your gas mask, you can't see because the hood is hanging down in front of your eyes. He must have been very sleep-deprived because he thought it was still dark. It was morning. It was daylight. And again, in his sleepy delirium, he has the presence of mind to reach into his cargo pocket, take out a flare. I don't know how to describe these. They look at the bottom of a lightsaber. You take the cap off, you put it at the bottom, and you hit it as hard as you can with the palm of your hand that shoots these starburst flares up into the air. Nobody could understand what he was doing. He thought it was dark, so he was hitting that for illumination. And, of course, gave away our entire position. The uh, the controller guy walks over and says, well, um, Doc, your LT just gave away your position. You're about to be overrun. What are you going to do now, Doc? Well, Wiz and I had always had a plan that if he was ever down, I would take the radio. And like I said, I had learned how to use the radio. I knew a lot of the, the radio protocols. And so I told the controller, I'm calling in an artillery strike on this position. And because I also had learned to do some of the work uh, with Sergeant Hudson, the forward observer, I also took took his radio, and I called in an artillery strike and an airstrike on our position. I knew the grids. Uh, I knew how to read a map, and I knew how to do this. And believe it or not, a few minutes later, the A-10s showed up. I can remember hearing them talking in, in the handset, and poor Sergeant Hudson. He was a hardcore dude. He was a ranger, and he was just so irritated and mad to be out of the fight. And so I did. I, I called in the airstrike, and the, the controller then walked up to me and said, hey, Doc, that was a great job. Uh, that's exactly what you needed to do. But oh, by the way, you got killed in the airstrike. So <laughs> that was it. If I if I won any any, and I would get a, a little medal for this after after the uh, after the deployment, I would get my Army Achievement Medal. Uh, but I guess in simulated terms, it was awarded posthumously. And then finally, I remember back in the containment area at Fort Irwin. They had, again, you have to remember, if you're young and listening to this show, nobody had cell phones. There was no such thing. But they would have these gigantic banks of payphones. They had like the regular payphone that you put quarters in. They also had these new blue ones that you could use a calling card. I had a calling card. So you you dial a 1-800 number, and then you would call another number. And I remember when we got back to the containment area, when the field problem was over, I called my dad. Uh, I called him at his office. And in those days, you know, he was a pretty high-ranking civilian employee. I think he was a GS-14 at the time, which is in military equivalents, like a lieutenant colonel. And his, you know, his secretary answered, and I said, hey, could I please speak to John Dias? Well, who's this? I said, what's his son, Jason? Oh, just a minute. Just... And my dad picked up. Now, 
I love my dad. Uh, my, my, I grew up in a great family. My older brother and my two younger sisters and my mom and dad are still married. Just an ideal, intact family. But like a lot of young men, you know, in my high school years, I was starting to drift a little bit, get a little rebellious. If you listen to episode two, you found out how I had to join the army uh, more than perhaps I really wanted to. And so there had been a little strain in the relationship with my dad. I don't think he agreed with my decision to join the army when I did, of course, him being an Air Force guy. I'm not sure he thought I was going to do very well in the Army, given what he had seen during my lackluster high school career. And I just got on the phone and I was talking to him about National Training Center and all the great things I had seen and the weaponry and the A-10s and, you know, talking about the strategic things from his time at the War College. And I, I don't know, I just, it, it was sort of that phone call where my dad and I just sort of rebonded, if you will. We reconnected over that experience. And, and that's the way we've been ever since. That's one of my favorite memories of the National Training Center, how, how happy my dad was to, to hear from me. I remember picking up the phone, hey, Jay, he was just so excited to hear from me. And we had such a great phone call talking about tactics and logistics anyway. Uh, the reason, the reason I've picked National Training Center and decided that it was the hardest field problem to me was because I found out that the hardest thing to do in the Army, especially in a tactical environment, was nothing. There were certain days at the National Training Center where we basically, our job was to sit and observe a portion of the battlefield. Well, if I told you, if you're listening to this right now, I'm just going to, I'm going to hit the pause button. I just want you to sit there for, I don't know, 72 hours with nothing to do. That's why I think it was the hardest. I remember on one of those uh, periods of time, I I kind of started to hallucinate. I remember very, very clearly being on this hill in the National Training Center. We were bivouacked. We were in our perimeter with 2nd Platoon, and I'm sitting there in my fighting position, and I see, it's a mirage, obviously, I see a high school marching band come walking through the, the bivouac area, I see little guys with the puffy hats and the drum major with the silver wand thing that they that they use. And I'm thinking, I know this isn't happening because if a high school marching band came marching through our bivouac area, the guys in 2nd Platoon would have beat the crap out of them. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm losing it here. I'm, I'm imagining things. And so that's why I say it was the hardest. The hardest thing I ever had to do was nothing when I was in the Army. It was very, very difficult. And so... My memories of the National Training Center, uh, you know, when we came back from that, I just, it was just like one more thing that we had accomplished is what, you know, what couldn't we do? You know, we could do stuff in the rivers. We could do stuff in Australia, the jungles of Panama, the hills of Fort Hunter Liggett. Can light infantry soldiers effectively fight in the desert? The answer to that question was absolutely yes. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to wrap it up, and we'll do it all right after this. This final segment of Light Fighters, The Last Foot Soldiers of the Cold War is brought to you by my favorite MRE, beef slices in barbecue sauce, five ounces, fruit, cookie, chocolate-covered, peanut butter, crackers, a spoon, and accessory pack A. La, 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 la. 
And of course, the nice thing about the National Training Center, you could toss those packets out in the sun and have a hot meal. I did that many times at the National Training Center. Maybe the only good thing about life in Death Valley when you are an infantry soldier. Okay, uh, I didn't know that you know the National Training Center would be the last big deployment I went on. That was in October of 1988, and I was scheduled to get out in March of 1989. Now, there was one last field problem. I want to talk to you here in the final moments about just my last final months in the Army. This final field problem, I remember because we're going to be in the field on Super Bowl Sunday. I think the 49ers, that's the game the 49ers beat the Bengals. I remember people were a little upset about that, but again, you know, when you're in the army, you could conceivably be deployed on, you don't stop fighting on Super Bowl Sunday. I was in Desert Storm during a Super Bowl two years later. Anyway, I, I, I remember my final field problem mostly for this reason. I got I to gotta thank Kenny for sending me a picture of one of the guys I've not talked about. Some of y'all remember Sergeant Ham. He would always walk up to me in the morning, no matter how cold it was, he never wore a jacket. He only wore his BDUs. He was getting ready for ranger school. And so I, I, I saw a picture of Sergeant Ham that Kenny sent me. Kenny Woods. And just this very morning, I saw a picture of 2nd Platoon, my guys from Alpha Company. Anyway, on this final field problem, 400 Liggett. Now, 400 Liggett wasn't cold, 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 but it's, it's cold if you're sleeping outdoors. Well, we had uh, to go off and do a, a little mission, and it was a, like a long-range reconnaissance patrol. There was only five or six of us, kind of like a squad size, and I walked out with the guys, and we set up in this hilltop in this overwatch for the night. And then, of course, the mission was to get where we needed to go and get back. Like in any field problem, again, land navigation was a big deal. Well, we did didn't have any hot food. It was cold that Sunday morning, Super Bowl Sunday, 1989. And, you know, we did have some MREs and some things like that. And it was commonplace to bury all of your trash before you moved out. And so we were going to be moving out later in the morning. And I went over um, by this little rocky hill and thought, here's a good place to bury all of our trash. And so I got out my entrenching tool, you know, I locked it down in that L-shaped position and I started digging. And I just dig a little bit and I I feel the, the blade hit something metallic. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, maybe I've discovered some ancient cache of money that's been left here from way back when. I'm rich. Nope. I cleaned it off. Somebody had buried two tins. Eric Rothschild can probably help us with this. There were two tins of what we would refer to as the gravy for biscuits in gravy. In the military, they called it SOS, but I'm not going to say it on the air. And so I take out these two tins of beef gravy and there's only like five or six of us and these two massive tins and we build a fire and we I, I remember I took the the stuff that you would use to make a cast. I had this like wire mesh stuff in my aid bag for making cast and I took it out and I made like a little grill out of it and we put these these beef these uh, sausage beef or whatever it was beef gravy things over the flames and oh my goodness the best breakfast I have ever had in 54 years upon this big blue and green marble Super Bowl Sunday, Fort Hunter Liggett, and that beef gravy. I remember we had our crackers, and we were just scooping it up, and man, we ate. We ate so well that particular morning, and, and I didn't know when I got back from 
Fort Hunter Liggett on that deployment, that would be the last time. That would be the last time I deployed to the field with Alpha Company. I wish I had known. I would have. I would have spent more time saying goodbye to the guys. Anyway, I, I felt like there was a bit of a reward for maybe some of the work I had done. But um, First Sergeant Gill, for February, I was getting out in March on March 4th of 1989. So February of 89, First Sergeant Gill arranges for me to be on what was called post support, had to start doing all of my administrative work to ETS out of the Army, little things that you don't even think about today. I had to go close my account at the Fort Ord Federal Credit Union and, you know, you know change my address, all this stuff, all of this stuff done by paper, you know, driving to places, your medical, physical, and all these things that you have to do. And so he arranged for me to be on post support my last full month in the Army, February of 89. My job was to get up very early go down to the flagpole, raise it in the morning, and lower it at night. And of course, at night, when we lowered the flag, you played the Star Spangled Banner, and everybody on post would turn to the direction of the flag and stand at attention and and salute. I mean, it was just just one of those moments. Everything stood still. The, The clatter and sounds of an entire city unto itself, Fort Ord, would stop during that national anthem and all you could hear was the crush of the Pacific Ocean up against the shore and I you know would stand there at attention and you know that's why I'll never kneel for the star-spangled banner and don't have any respect for anybody that does and that was my last month in the army just being on post support you know I'd get up early raise the flag uh, go back out and lower it and and the hours in between were my own and and I wish I wish I'd spent more time saying goodbye to everybody one of my most clear and present memories is on the way home I drove home from Fort Ord back to San Antonio and on the second day as I was driving through the Sonoran Desert I was forgetting the names of people that I had seen every day of my life for the past three years. And it was a little disconcerting. We didn't have social media. We didn't have cell phones. We all made promises to uh, get together again. And of course, as is the case, you know, like I said, Wiz came to see me after after he got out. Uh, my roommate, Jim Benola, has resettled here in South Texas. I saw Eric briefly back in the early 1990s. But so many of you who are so important to me, I've, I've never seen you again and may never ever see you again. So what did it all mean? From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something, as you can see, almost to party on. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? Well, I don't know how you measure it. I just know that... We were part of it. The end of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall coming down, perhaps the most symbolic part of that. You know, the final correction since the end of World War II, and we've avoided this massive Third World War in Western Europe, and the good guys, the Americans, emerge victorious. I'm honored to have been a part of the last two victories in war, the Cold War and Operation Desert Storm. The work we did at Fort Ord was part of that. 
If you look at it, you look at the places where we have been as soldiers, any place where we've deployed soldiers to fight, those places are peaceful. Japan, Germany, the Western Hemisphere, for the most part, doesn't have any kind of wars going on right now. We were a big part of that stability in the end of the 20th century. You know, the only guy who didn't get the message was Saddam Hussein. And so globally, we were part of the end of the Cold War. For me personally, when the time came in Desert Storm and things got really tight, I didn't panic. I didn't lose it. I, I fell back on my training that I got when I was in the 7th Infantry Division and, and was a leader in this ridiculous Texas National Guard outfit that I deployed to Desert Storm with. And then against all odds, I'm on the security detail with the Saudi National Guard and Air Force, and we drive right into the Battle of Kopchi in February or the last day of January 1991 and find myself in a situation where, yep, have to shoot back. And again, all of that training from the Mount site in Fort Benning, the three to five round burst, shoot on the exhale, all the great training that I received comes into play. And, you know, from a, from a global perspective, I was glad to have been a part of the 7th Infantry Division and the role that we played in, st in stabilizing the world at the end of the 20th century, uh, I believe hastening the end of the Cold War. And then on a personal level, it equipped me to be in a real war in 1991 during Operation Desert Storm. But it is interesting to note that when you see places where American soldiers have been deployed to fight and win, those places are peaceful. When we've deployed soldiers to be nation builders or peacekeepers like the Middle East, those places are still a mess. Something I hope our civilian leaders from all parties will keep in mind. Well, before we get out of here, I've got to send one last quick shout out to Paul Carrito. He's provided a lot of the pictures I've used in this podcast series. Some of y'all remember Doc Carrito. Uh, he was the most colorful character I met in all of my time in the military. Polly from Long Island, from New York, Guinea, Carrito. Uh, just, I, I, there are still moments during the day at a red light where I'm sitting here in the studio. I'll just laugh out loud thinking about some of the things that he said and did. And I've, I've told stories about Paul Carrito to coworkers and friends and family members and my son and my wife. He, he is a, a legend in my mind because he really was. I met so many great people, uh, but he was the most colorful character I ever met. I want to thank uh, Frank Mew. This was his idea. He suggested that I do this when I was doing the Desert Storm podcast, and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed reconnecting with all of y'all. Um, I don't know if I've told you this, but I'm using the the occasion of Veterans Day not only to end this podcast, but I'm signing off of Facebook forever. I will have my email address and my phone number there in the episode description. If you want to keep in touch with me, please do. You can email me. You can call or text me anytime. I've enjoyed reminiscing with you, and I always will. And I just really appreciate all the help from the people that, you know, that helped me with this, with my memory and names and dates. Sergeant Epps, uh, Colonel Harkins, Lieutenant Eigel, Eric Rothschild, everybody. It's just been absolutely wonderful.
The dream is always the same. I'm walking down the long hallway upstairs in the barracks. I'm going to the doors and want to open them. The rooms are empty. I go down the stairs, in between the buildings. I can feel the cool mist, smell the Pacific, and hear the waves crashing out by Stillwell Hall. But I can't find any of you. And then I wake up, and I look forward to the next time I have that dream. If you think about it, meet me in that dream sometime. We will ruck out to the impossible city, spend the night in the backyard, make ramen and drink coffee. Then we'll hitch a ride back to Garrison, go up to the barracks, get wicked drunk, and stumble over to the rally point. We'll wake up on Friday morning and do PT, then sit around the table at the mess hall and talk. Not look at our phones, but really talk. And it will be as it was in that beautiful place near Monterey, California, when we were young, so young, when our legs and arms did not creak in the morning, when our spines were like steel and our minds sharp as the tip of a bayonet. And it will seem real. And we can wake up and go about our lives content in the knowledge that we did what others could not. Back in the late 1980s, when a group of young men who grew up without computers, cell phones, and social media will help end the Cold War. This has not been based on a true story. This has been a true story. So one last time, thank you all for listening. Gentlemen, it was an honor. May God bless and keep you, and may you all have lives of peace and prosperity. This is Doc Dias signing off. To you, the light fighters, the last foot soldiers of the Cold War, no slack, cold steel, bushmasters, and night fighters, boar, brother, boar.
Street.